Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through his word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. Well, good morning, church. How y'all doing today? Good. You glad to, glad to be here this morning? I know I'm certainly glad to be here. And I'm standing up straight, right? So praise God for that. My physical therapy has been going very well with my back, and uh, I appreciate so much your prayers over the last few weeks. And uh, it's, been, it's been a journey, and uh, grateful to be here, so grateful to have friends here, um, friends that have been in, um, in, in multiple seasons of my history in Christ. And uh, it's good to see Tyler and Katarina Heath, if y'all would make them feel welcome, all the way from Knox, Vegas, Tennessee. Also, Carrie and Reagan Beavers, y'all make them feel welcome right here. They're, they're also visiting with us today from, from Cleveland, Tennessee, and uh, they've both been a part of our student ministries and college ministries in the past, and Tyler Heath, even a part of School of Ministry, uh, making Disciple School of Ministry. So glad to have you here. We are in a series called The Reset. Everybody say The Reset. And in week one of the series, we looked at re-examining our path of how we look at our path. And so many times in our life, we compare our path to other people's path. And we compare our trajectory in Christ to the trajectory of Christ in another person's life. And so we talked about what it meant to follow, re-examine our path in the reset. Over the last two weeks, Pastor Chad talked about word and deed. And he talked about right there in the middle, a powerful message last week on the tongue, how to get a reset of the tongue. Today, I want to talk to you uh, in a continuation of the series, but address a question that I think is a top three question, without a doubt, that I get as a pastor. And uh, if you're taking notes, the slides will be on the screen uh, as well. I loaded it on the YouVersion app, but somehow some people are saying it's not showing up. I, I don't know what's happening there. But nonetheless, it is working? All right, cool. Awesome. All right, so the glitch on the iPhone 4. <laughs> so you got to have iOS like negative 0.6 to make it work, okay? They're on like 9.0 by now, but we want to walk through this question. The question I get, the big question is, how do I know that I'm in God's will? How do I know that I'm in God's will? Well, we're talking about the path, so related to the path, we would reframe that and would say, how do I know I'm on God's path? That's the title of the message today. How do I know I am on God's path? How do I know I'm on God's path. I want you to turn to three spots this weekend. Oh, by the way, the Bible opens with a picnic. It ends with a feast. Jesus' number one most uh, used object in the entire New Testament was a table. But that's not the reason I'm using it. <laughs> it made it sound spiritual, but that is true. But that does tell, tell us something about the hospitality of our God, isn't it? Yes? The hospitality of our God, using the table all the time. So I'm using the table because my back, all right, just to help me out. But nonetheless, I can still preach. Can you still listen? Yeah. All right, very good. So, so turn to three spots, uh, which I know is a challenge for some of you. I told them in the early gathering, uh, if you only have one marker in your Bible, that's a challenge. Um, you, here's how you know your Bible's really extra spiritual. You got two markers. And if your Bible's got three markers, you're really extra spiritual, all right? And post-it notes takes it to a whole nother level. All right, but Matthew chapter three is where we're gonna look, Luke 22 and Acts 10. Matthew three, Luke 22, Acts 10, all of these dealing with the, the life of Jesus Christ, the life of Jesus Christ. And, um, you know, I, I wanna start with Matthew chapter three. And the way it usually gets asked to me is from the perspective of this. 
Pastor Greg, I don't know if I'm on God's path or not. I don't, I don't know what God's will is. I'm freaking out to know what it is. I'm anxious. I'm, I'm thinking I'm going to miss it. I'm thinking I'm going to turn left when he asked me to go right. And, and, and let me just kind of challenge that perspective for just a bit, all right, to kind of start this out. Let me tweak it, so to, so to speak. Some people think it's actually weak to ask the question to God, am I in your will? God, am I, am I actually on your path? But I actually think that is an incredible question that God wants us to ask. I think God loves it when we ask, Lord, right now in my life, am I in your will? Because that means you want to be in his will. That means you want to be. It's a sure sign or fruit that you have a desire to be. If you're asking, see, so what, ha- what happens is the enemy loves to get you so focused on the fact that you're not sure what God's will is, but God loves when you ask the question what his will is because it shows that you desire it. It shows that you want it. It shows that you desire to walk out his path for your life. So if this is where you are today, before we kind of jump in to see how it is you can know you're on his path, you gotta just kind of take a deep breath and realize you desire to be. So if you've been beating yourself up, stop. We'll show you how you can know for sure how you're on his path, not your own path. Number one, there's more confirmation than confusion. How do I know I'm on God's path? There's more confirmation than confusion. Let me define uh, confirmation for you real quick. It means to recommunicate something that has already been communicated. To recommunicate something that's already been communicated. If you're a parent, you understand this well. You usually have to wait to the ninth time before your kids, or at least in my house, before they'll do what you ask them to do. And now by the time it gets to the ninth, it doesn't look like confirmation. It looks like discipline, if you know what I'm saying. But sometimes you have to say it over and over and over again. You tell the kids over and over and over again. I know that's in my house. I got a seven-year-old Knox who scored 18 points in his basketball game yesterday, 18 of 30 on the team. That's, that's Steph Curry status for seven-year-old. And his nana and ball ball were there, and he, kept, he does this every time he makes it. He would look over and do this. And uh, he also lost his first tooth this week. That's a big week in his life. And so, and then I also have a four-year-old um, who hung the moon, and then I have a, a six-week-old. Uh, how many weeks? Eight, yeah, eight weeks old, so. <laughs> Two months. Nonetheless, I read on Facebook this week, the average four-year-old asks 437 questions a day. That's why they should pay kindergarten teachers way more, <laughs> right? A lot more, right? Lots and lots of questions. But you got to tell the kids nine times sometimes to do something. Listen, from God's perspective, confirmation is recommunicating what has already been recommunicated. The first passage is to help us understand how important it is that God wants to confirm. Confirmation is so extremely important to God. First, I want to read chapter 11. As I read this, you're going to remember where this happened in Jesus' life and why it's so important. Okay, This is now referring back to the Last Supper. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul writes, in the same way he took the cup of wine after supper, saying this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Let me just pause and say, the covenant that God made with you and I is not confirmed with my behavior. The covenant that God makes with us is not confirmed by our behavior. It's confirmed by his blood. Jesus said, by my blood. Do this in remembrance. Of me as often as you drink it, for every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. Notice that. Let me point something out right there. The agreement, as I said, is not confirmed by your behavior. It's confirmed by his blood. Do you understand how important that is? Jesus is admitting to the disciples on the night of the betrayal that he knows there would be days where you would wake up and you would second guess whether or not that God made that covenant with you. 
You would second guess whether or not God really did what God said he did and what he did on the cross in his work of redemption. And, 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 and it happens all the time, right? I get it all the time um, as a pastor. I, I don't know, Craig, if I'm actually saved, and, and I don't know if I'm, I'm really born again and have the assurance of my salvation as a child of God. And here is the reason I think most doubt their salvation is because they're too focused on their own behavior and not his covenant, his blood. He said, it's confirmed by my blood. The covenant is not confirmed with my behavior. It's confirmed with Christ's blood. God was giving you a gift that when you wake up and the enemy taunts you, you wake up and the enemy comes against you, that you aren't saved, that you aren't a child of God, God gave you a gift. What is it? Confirming his covenant with you with the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. He gave the confirmation. God loves confirmation. I want to walk through three passages of Jesus on earth, and I want you to see today how each of these speak to how we know we are on God's path. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. So if we're talking about our way, we need to look to the way. And that's name, his name is Jesus. So to love God means to follow Jesus. So I think it would probably be a little bit of wisdom to look at Christ's path on the earth to discern what God's path looks like for us. What is his path? Am I on God's path? Matthew chapter three, beginning of verse 16, this is the story of Jesus' baptism. A powerful, powerful text. The Bible says there at the Jordan River, the first Trinitarian appearance really in all of Scripture where God the Father speaks, God the Son is apparent, and God the Holy Spirit is present. After his baptism, that is Jesus, Jesus came up out of the water, the heavens were open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove. I do want to make mention there that is a simile in the English language, like a dove, using like or as, right, making a comparison that the Holy Spirit's not a dove. Even though VBS taught us it was like a fire or a dove or a wind, the Holy Spirit is a person. But to describe his mannerisms, he comes on like a dove, the Bible says, and settling on him, Jesus. And a voice from heaven said, this is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. Brings me great joy. Now think about this for a minute. Early on in ministry, Jesus had been on earth for 30 years. This is the inauguration of his ministry. This is the start of his earthly ministry. But Jesus had been here for 30 years. There had been a lot of talk in the community and Israel about Jesus before that we don't see in the scripture. You say, Craig, how do you know that? When your life starts out with a star over your birthplace and people come worship you, you get talked about. Okay? At, the, at midnight, at the birth of the Son of God, there was a light in heaven. And at midday, when the sun was overhead, at the death of the Son of God, the whole skies went dark. I mean, think about this. Okay? This is Jesus. Okay? He's been born. Now, there's all kinds of whispers. People are talking about you. They got all kinds of opinions about you. Yeah, just a carpenter's son. Joseph, I changed his diaper. I imagine the scene kind of like this. There's two guys getting in an argument one day. One's really hot-headed. It's morning time. You know what? I think Jesus is the Messiah. Nah, I'm not really buying that. They go back and forth, and so since they're so tired, they decide to do what all godly people do in the afternoon, take a nap. I don't take naps, actually, but I guess it means I'm not godly. They go and take a nap, and they're underneath the tree. Just imagine. Jesus is being baptized, and they are awakened. Could you imagine waking up with a loud, booming voice? Because a lot of people are going out to John to be baptized for a baptism of repentance. And it's this voice. This is my son with whom I'm well pleased. And I got a question for you. If God woke you up from a nap where before you went to sleep, you were doubting whether he was the son of God, and you heard him speak like that, would you have any doubt that he is the son of God? No. Not at all. That's why confirmation is so important. 
It's so important to even Jesus, who's the Son of God, to receive confirmation from his Father before he does anything public for him in ministry. That every bit of activity in God has to flow out of an identity that's already been spoken by the Father. If the activity starts preceding the identity or spoken of the Father, then we will operate out of a religious shell and not the identity of Jesus Christ. The identity God's given us. And so notice that Jesus comes up out of the water and all of a sudden this great confirmation comes. This confirmation. God loves to give confirmation. And one of the reasons why is because he didn't create you to guess. He created you to know. Did you know that? God did not create us to guess. God created us to know. That's why confirmation is so important. And maybe you right now are going through a really difficult time. And you're desperate to know if you're in the center of God's will. Because you didn't think God's will and the center of God's will would ever look this hard. Well, let me tell you something. God desires to confirm you are on his path. He does. Confirm it. God gives us the gift of confirmation so that on the craziest days of our lives, we have something to go back to and remind ourselves, I am not the reason I got myself into this. Folks, I told the early gathering this last week, and I just covet your prayers. I came through the back, and as you see, the back is getting better. But I've had the most difficult, there's no doubt, the most difficult week of my life. Mentally, uh, I had diverticulitis attack again, and so obviously that presents some challenges um, this week. But I, mentally, I've never, I've never in my life had to deal with uh, bouts of strong depression and anxiety and mental warfare that I'm facing, um, dizziness and spells, and uh, I'm just under major spiritual attack. I know what it is, and I call it for what it is. But you know what? In those seasons of life, and, and this is the only way I know how to minister church, by the way. If you haven't figured this out by now, this is the only way I know how to minister, is with authenticity of where I'm at. And when you're on those craziest days of your life, this is why God gives us confirmation. This is why God gives us confirmation. He confirms again and again and again and again when we are on his path. And I can look up to the Lord and say, God, I just did what you told me to do. That's all I did. I just obeyed you. I followed you. And if you don't think that I or Pastor Chad needed confirmation to step out in church plant, you are crazy. Yes, you got to have confirmation. And God loves to give confirmation. Listen, we were not created to guess. We were created to know. Genesis 126, you were created in the image of God. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Last time I checked, God is not a guesser. He's the all-knowing. He's not asked us to guess. So he's not making it. If we're made in his image, do you think God loves to make second guessing one of our favorite hobbies? No. He's created us to know. I love these random passages in scripture that are funny. Isaiah chapter seven is one of those. I want you to turn there with me. It'll come on the screen as well. Isaiah seven is the messianic prophecy 550 years before Jesus steps foot on the earth, but it's the prophecy nonetheless that um, we always use at Christmas time. It's the one of Emmanuel, the Lord with God, God is with us. But, but I want you to see something because it relates to, uh, we glance over it a lot of times. It relates to the, this, this issue and idea of confirmation. This is between Isaiah and King Ahaz. Isaiah chapter seven, starting in verse 10, he said, later the Lord sent this message to King Ahaz. Ask the Lord your God for a sign of confirmation. Everybody say confirmation. Ahaz, make it as difficult as you want. You want to talk about a cocky statement. Oh, make it as difficult as you want. As high as the heaven or as deep as the place of the dead. But the king said, no. Ahaz said, I can't do that. I'm not going to test the Lord. 
But Isaiah responds and says, well, listen, your royal lineage isn't enough to exhaust human patience. Must you exhaust the patience of my God as well? All right then, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Here's the sign. The virgin will conceive a child. She'll give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Now, pause. You had no idea Mary having the baby was part of a prove-it statement that God made many years before. Mary having the baby was a prove-it statement God made 550 years before of a sign of confirmation. Let me say something to you. There are some pretty crazy confirmation God wants to give you in your own journey, but if you're on your own path, you'll never see them. You'll never see them. You'll never see them. Here's one of the ways you know you're on your path. You're not even looking for confirmation. Because when you're on your own path, you don't need confirmation. You are your own confirmation. One of the ways you know you're on God's path is because you're looking for his confirmation. Because if you didn't have his confirmation, one of the ways you know you're on his path, you're desperately looking for confirmation. As long as you're getting what you want and you're going where you want, you don't need confirmation. And this is God's confirmation. God challenged me this week. Craig, what kind of father do you think I am? You think I'm the kind of father that loves to make my children guess? Craig, do you understand when you come to me and say, am I in your will, God? Do you realize what you're saying? We mostly respond like this. We think in this terms. When we ask God his will, we think he responds like this. We think he takes us into a private room, isolates us from everybody else, puts two options. Option one, option two. One's my path, Craig. One's your path. All right. Would you like to know which path is my path? Yes, Lord, please. Please, Lord Jesus, show me your path. All right. Take this baseball bat. Put it on your forehead. Bend over and spin. How many times, Lord? 70 times 7. <laughs> well, by the time you get around the 12th time and you look up and you're dazed and confused and you can't see straight, you don't even see the wall, then God drops a bomb on you and says, it's not enough just to be dizzy. Now I want to blindfold you. And then he takes out the blindfold, the blindfold and puts it on you. It's got to be a challenge for them to discern my will. I can't make it clear for you. And most of us think that's what kind of father our God is. Because the enemy has convinced us it's just too hard to discern what his will is. Here's what kind of father our God is. When you ask him a question, he loves to bring you the right answer. He loves to bring you the right answer. I'll go even further. When you ask him what he wants, he loves to tell you. He's not about to make you guess what he wants. Just like you husbands, when you ask your wife what they want for Christmas, what she wants for Christmas, she's not going to be general and generic with you. She loves to tell you exactly what she wants you to bring her. I know it's hard to believe, but God loves to tell you exactly what he loves for you to bring him. He's not trying to get you to guess. Listen to me, church. The life of Christ and life of faith cannot be lived in general or by abstractions. It has to be specific. And God gives confirmation. He's not trying to get you to guess. When you're on his path, he will confirm it. And if it's been a while since you've gotten any confirmation, that's an obvious indication that you are on your path and not his. That's the first one. Secondly, how do I know I'm on his path? You endure things you'd never allow. You endure things you would never allow. This one encouraged me so much. Look at Luke chapter 22, all from the stories of Jesus. Luke chapter 22, powerful, powerful text, starting in verse 39. This is 
immediately after Jesus has now left the upper room. And the Bible says in Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 39, if you'll see it there on the screen in front of you. Then accompanied by his disciples, Jesus left the upstairs room and went as usual to the Mount of Olives. And he told them, pray that you would not give into temptation. He walked away about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed. Now listen to our, our Savior. Father, if you're willing, please take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Then the angel from heaven appeared and strengthened him. It's got to be one of the most encouraging passages in all of Scripture. The Son of God in the middle of God's path says to his Father, I know how this story ends and I don't like it. I know how this journey, where it's going, and I don't like it. And if there's any way possible to take this cup, this cup of suffering, and give to someone else other than me, Lord, please give it to someone else. But if this is your path for my life, I want your will, not mine. The enemy loves to convince some of us that being frustrated with God's path for our life is not allowed. And it is allowed. Being frustrated, downright mad, angry, confused, even doubting at times about God's path. God can handle your frustration. God can handle your frustration about even the path that he's calling you to walk. He can handle it. I think, if you want to write this down, he would rather you be honestly frustrated than dishonestly faithful. Can I say that again? I think he would rather you be honestly frustrated than dishonestly faithful. That you come before him and just be frustrated and share with him. I, as a pastor, would rather someone come into my office or come into a meeting with me and puke on me with their frustration about God's path. I just don't know if I can do it, Pastor Greg. I don't know if I can. Yeah. But by the way, that's one of the reasons I know you're going to do it because you come and talk about how you don't want to do it, right? And so I'd rather someone come in and talk about their frustration with God's path. I'd rather them do that than come in and say, you know what? I just love Jesus so much. I just, I count it all joy, brother. This is just amazing enduring through these challenges. I love enduring. I love the testing of my patience. It's just amazing. I, I, no, we, we want off his path at times, right? One of the ways we know we're on his path is we endure things we would never allow ourselves to endure on our own path. We would never allow it to happen. If we were on our own path, we'd downright do whatever we wanted whenever we wanted, however we wanted it. And most of our paths would be the most path of least resistance. No offense. If I was on my path, it wouldn't include you. That's not... Because I don't like you, I love you. It's because this is his path. Some of you, if it's your path, you'd be perpetually retired on a beach hammock all day long. And you'd sleep all day and eat Cajun food. Because that is godly. The path, of, the path of least resistance. Most of our paths. That's what the Bible says. The Bible says man left to his own devices would always choose the easy wide road. Wide road, broad is the gate, right? Wide is the gate, broad is the road that leads to destruction. That's what the Bible says. But his path, let me tell you, it requires that we endure some things. It requires it. It requires endurance. I want you to read Philippians 129. It's so encouraging. He said, for you have been given not only the privilege of trusting in Christ, but also the privilege of suffering for him. You've been given not only suffering 
or trusting, but also suffering. Let me say this about suffering because there's a lot of confusion about the word suffering. We in the Western world, we, I think sometimes we confuse what we call enduring challenges with suffering catastrophes. We confuse enduring challenges with suffering catastrophes. And um, let, me exp- let me prove it to you. If I took you to some really dark places in the world right now where suffering's really, really, really happening, here's how you know. They would look at what you call suffering and call it preferential. I told you back in December, you know, people at the end of the year, social media, 2016 was a terrible year, but they're tweeting from their $599 iPhone, right? You know, you, you gotta get perspective globally. You gotta get perspective. What we call enduring challenges and actually suffering. We do it all the time, right? How you doing? Oh, I'm just suffering for Jesus, Pastor Greg. Well, how you suffering? Well, I miss this, I miss this job making $48,000 a year, you know, and, uh, but I just hate my boss. Yeah, the average median salary right now is $1,225 a year globally. And one-third of the entire world population lives on less than a dollar a day. I'm just suffering. Well, how are you suffering? Well, you know, I'm making $50,000 a year for the last few years, but I can't stand my boss. Well, that's an enduring challenge, isn't it? That's an enduring challenge. Don't get me wrong, please. I don't mean this the wrong way, but we sound like children sometimes when we do that, don't we? No? Yes? We sound like children sometimes. The common question of my children today, (laughs) it's not, Dad, how you doing? Not, Dad, how's your day? Not, what happened at church? The common question for my kids is, what's what's bedtime? Right? Or it could be, what are we having for dinner? Right? And listen, when mom or dad says, uh, bedtime tonight is 8.30 p.m., they act like they have been told they're going to stand before the firing squad. You know what I'm saying? It's like, 8.30? Are you serious? We have to go to bed at 8.30 again. It's like, look at him. I'm like, Knox, you remember, there are children all over the world begging for a bed, son. They're begging for your bedroom, begging for somewhere to stay under a roof and be able to go to bed at 8.30. You know what I'm saying? My kids in that moment, they would, I'm I'm not kidding. They would say, we are suffering. In that moment, we are suffering right now. We're not suffering for Jesus. We're suffering at the hands of an angry dictator father. Hitler Craig, you know. We're suffering. Well, children, what's your dad doing? Is he waterboarding you or what? Is he beating your head in? I mean, like, what's happening? He's making us go to bed at 8.30. I wonder if some of the things that we try and convince God that we're enduring, that we're calling suffering, if they're as silly to him as my kids whining about bedtime to you. Enduring. Let me make it really obvious whether or not you're suffering or you're enduring. If God's path for your life doesn't include crucifixion, chances are you're enduring. Now, I'm not minimizing suffering. No, 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 no. There's solidarity with suffering. And God builds fellowship with scars. Some of you right now, the things you're enduring, the number one lie of the enemy, he's telling you is you're the only one to ever go through it. I'm here to tell you you're not the only one to ever go through it. You're not the only one to ever go through it. You're not the only one facing what you're facing. And the enemy's gonna isolate you and he's gonna attack you and say, you're only doing it. You're the only one. This is what the enemy's done to me this week. You're the only one. You're never gonna get back. You're never gonna have a clear mind. You're never gonna be able to think like you used to think when I've been foggy mind. But let me tell you something. There is strength and fellowship. You wanna know why you need a local church? You need a local church because when you come together as God's people, you can look at somebody else and you can say, you know what? I've gone through what you're going through and my healing is your healing. There is strength and there is fellowship and scars. You can... You can, you can be marked by those scars the rest of your life, but you know what? They're 
gained strength for other people by what you've endured. There's power in fellowship. What is it you've endured? Jesus called it the cup of suffering, but it wasn't just the walk up to the cross. It was the beating the whole way and then the crucifixion to the point of death. I get encouraged on really difficult days when I'm faced with enduring things because I know I didn't sign up for those. And when I know I'm facing things I didn't sign up for, it reminds me I am not on my path. I'm on his. I'm on his. Here's why. You know how awesome this is for you? Some of the things you've been whining most about are actually God's greatest confirmations you're on his path and not yours. That's awesome. And you were thinking through that first point when I gave you earlier about there's more, confu- or more uh, confirmation than confusion. You're thinking, you know, I don't have any confirmation. It's been forever since I've had a confirmation. It's been forever since I've had confirmation. Well, listen, uh, maybe the most obvious confirmation he's given you are the challenges that you've had to endure and submit to. We don't like to submit to him, right? We want to run off the altar as a living sacrifice. That's why he says in Romans 12, too, to become a living sacrifice. Living sacrifices crawl back off the altar in difficult times. But you got to keep on laying on the altar. Oh, I'm a living sacrifice today, God, and then temptation comes at 12 o'clock, and I, I look. When I was battling sexual temptation so strong in my life as a new believer in Christ, I remember so strongly in the imagery God gave me of morning by morning waking up and picking my body up and I would lay myself down on the altar of God. I would picture myself entering into heaven and seeing the pile of rocks where thousands and millions of saints have gone before me and offered their sacrifice, their body, their life, and I would lay it down and then I would get this imagery of taking my, my, my foot and I would put my foot on my Adam's apple and I would hold my neck down. And when temptation came later that day, I would say the temptation is not an issue of me saying no to it. You're going to say no to it through me. I'm a living sacrifice. I'm laying down right here. Because when life gets difficult, I start sliding off the sacrifice. I start crawling off the sacrifice. A living sacrifice. The enduring that Jesus is asking us to endure. This is the confirmation. Who would have thought? But we hate to suffer, right? We hate to endure. You know, Isaiah 7 is one of those funny passages. Let me give you another one in Hebrews chapter 2. The writer of Hebrews who's writing to people that are suffering. They've lost their homes for the Christian faith. Uh, Homes have been burned. Major persecution happening. I want you to do an English lesson with me right quick and see if you notice a word in the second half of the sentence that's missing from the first. Missing in the second that's present in the first. Since he, that's Jesus himself, has gone through suffering and testing. Since he's done it, he's now able to help us when we are being tested. It's a funny verse. You see why? Anyone notice anything funny? The writer says it's awesome that Jesus went through suffering and testing because then he can help us when we are being tested because I'm not about to be suffering. I I love that Jesus suffered and he was tested because he's going to help me in my test. We don't want the suffering part. We don't want that part. We we just want the testing. The testing, the enduring, that's good enough. No, it's it's a point and it's a part of the human condition to try to eliminate suffering, not only from our vocabulary, but our experience. We do all that we can to get rid of suffering. Sometimes the greatest confirmation is what God has asked you to endure. Listen to how 1 Corinthians 13 describes it. It's such a powerful, it's a poetic way, but it's so powerful. 1 Corinthians 13, look at Paul and his discourse there in the great love chapter. Love never gives up. Love never loses faith. Love is always hopeful, and love endures through every circumstance. 
on those really tough days when you're enduring things you didn't possibly think you could ever endure, when the enemy tries to convince you you're crazy, when the enemy tries to convince you you're losing your mind, when the enemy tries to convince you that you are not his child, remind yourself that you are enduring because that's what love does. Love does. My mentor many, many months ago told me, he said the, the last three words of his mother on her deathbed were love, love, love. And he said that's because in the end we all know that that's all that matters. That's what love does. Love endures every circumstance. The reason you're enduring is because that's what love does. The reason I'm enduring this difficult season of marriage, Pastor Craig, where I wish to God I could run so far away from this person. I wish to God I could just turn my back and go somewhere. That's just what love does. And I made a promise to God I would endure even the harshest of winters. The harshest of winters will pass. Tough times don't last. Tough people do. When it's difficult seasons at work and you feel like giving up and you're being asked by God to endure things, even to the point of humiliation where people are not recognizing what you've done, they're recognizing what somebody else has done, and now you're humiliated in front of everybody else and you never thought you would endure what you're enduring. And now when your colleagues are saying, why are you putting up with that? Why do you keep dealing with this? Why do you do it? You remind yourself and you remind them as a gospel message. That's what love does. And God told me to be here and I ain't leaving until I finish the race. This is what love does. Love, keep my God, I feel his anointing in this room. His love endures through every circumstance. There is nothing you can face this side of eternity that his love will not empower you to endure. That's the gospel. His love is fierce. I'm preaching to myself. His love is fierce. His love is undeniable. Hallelujah. Would you just worship the Lord right now? Hallelujah, Jesus. Hallelujah, God. Hallelujah, Lord. Hallelujah. Come on, just take a few minutes and thank Him for His love. God, Woo. thank you, Jesus, for your love and your mercy and your grace, God. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Though, thank you for your love, God. Thank you for your love. And I personally think we should celebrate the challenges we're being asked to endure because they're a gift from God. And God's asking you to endure because he knows you can handle it. Can I just say something to you? Sometimes the best compliment God can pay you other than the blood of his son, because that's not a compliment, that's what you're worth. That's what you're worth, the blood of his son. But the best compliment God can pay you is to show you what he knows and believes you can handle. The best compliment. What's the result, Craig, of having to endure difficult things? Why in the world would God ask us to endure more than we could? One reason. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8 and 9. Paul, in his final discourse to the church at Corinth, tells us about his own experience. We thank you all to know, dear brothers and sisters, about the trouble we went through in the province of Asia. We were crushed. We were overwhelmed beyond our ability to endure. Everybody say endure. That's beyond it. They had no ability to endure anymore. And we thought we would never live through it. How many times have I heard in counseling sessions from moms whose sons and daughters are away from the Lord or husbands away from the Lord or wife away from the Lord or a bad report of cancer? I thought I would never live through it. My mom got a, a non-alcoholic cirrhosis diagnosis 10 years ago. You'll never live through it without a liver transplant. How many times we thought we would never live through it? In fact, we expected to die. But as a result, as a result of enduring, we stopped 
relying on ourselves. We stop relying in self-sufficiency and learn to rely only. There it is. It's not just learning to rely on God. It's learning to rely, let's add an adverb, only on God. I'm learning to rely only on Jesus Christ who raises the dead. This is our God. I'm learning through every trial, every difficulty that God is asking me to endure to rely fully on him. Do you realize, church, when God asks you to endure something you don't think you can, do, you, you can, you can endure, it's his main motivation to do so is to remind you that you can unless you fully rely on him. And it'll break you. And God will bring out a ministry out of it that is so beautiful. So beautiful. Takes a misery and makes it a ministry. Takes a mess and makes it a message. Takes a test and makes it a testimony. This is how God works. I told you two weeks ago the reason, three weeks ago, the reason God puts mountains in our path for this reason. If God were to come to you tomorrow morning at 6 a.m., knock on your door, Craig, I want for you and I for the next three hours, unbroken fellowship, I want us to go up on Kennesaw Mountain. I want us to hike that mountain together. Would I ever say to God, God, I'm sorry, my thighs are burning. No. Do you realize that every mountain that God puts in your path, God is coming to your door and it's a personal invitation for you and him to climb it together. To climb it together. To climb the mountain God has put on the path. In the same way, when God asks you to endure difficulty, it's not because he's mad at you. He's not punishing you. God is saying, I know you can handle this, and here's how I know. If you fully rely on me, you can handle anything. Anything life throws your way. Here's the third thing, and I'll close. How do I know I'm on his path? How do I know I'm on his path? You accomplish things you are not capable of. You accomplish things you are not capable of. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 9, a powerful text, one that used always in the context of covenant of marriage. Two people are better off than one, for they can help each other succeed. If two people are better than one, let me insert this question into that text if I can. How much better is one plus God? What if the other half of the equation is you and God? The Bible says, what's the result of that? Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Here's another way to say that. The emphasis of that verse is not on me. The emphasis of the verse is not just on Christ. The emphasis of that verse is on we, me and Christ together, what we can accomplish. Because why? He wants partnership. He wants an effort for partnership. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Do you understand what you are capable of when you daily connect with the Father? Do you understand? This is the reason, by the way, the most lethal attack. There's nothing more lethal in your life than growing complacent in your prayer life, especially when things are going good. The most lethal thing and downfall of a leader is when you grow complacent in the prayer life because of what you can accomplish when you're in communion with the Father, in communion with the Holy Spirit. Do you realize what you're capable of when you connect daily with the Father? Far more than you can imagine. One of the problems I have with sports growing up, you guys know I love sports. But uh, sports train us to get focused on stats, right? Personal statistics. A stat tells me what I did, right? A stat tells me what I did. Everybody say rise up. 
Dirty birds, baby. Dirty birds. Three o'clock. I hope there's a lot of stats from Matt Ryan. I hope there's little stats from Aaron Rodgers. <laughs> he said he's ready to paint himself if he didn't hear. Stats get us trained, if you will, to focus on what we can do. But I, I, I got a kind of a little notion here that when we get to heaven, we won't be talking about statistics. Here's what I see in heaven. I just see every now and again, God's going to come up to you. It'll be maybe in the morning time. He's just going to put his arm around you. He's going to say, hey, do you remember uh, that mountain that we climbed together way back then that you, you never thought you could climb? You remember that? Yeah, Lord. Wasn't that awesome? Yeah. And then you'll go worship a little bit more, and then he'll come back to you again, and he'll put his arm around you and say, hey, um, I got a question for you. You remember that night when you were going to sleep? Where were you living? Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, I remember. You remember that night you were just about to go to sleep, and I spoke to you, and that one night I told you, I said, your schedule is killing your family? And you're a workaholic? And remember what I told you? I told you to go into your boss the next day and to resign in faith. You remember that? Yeah, I remember that, Lord. You remember what happened the next day? Oh, yeah, I remember, Lord. You remember how scared you were? Oh, my hands were sweaty. Palms were sweaty. My heart was beating out of my chest. You remember what happened, though? Yeah. You walked into the office and told her your situation. And when you told her her situation, not only did she not fire you, she promoted you. You remember that? Yeah, I remember that, Lord. And maybe all throughout eternity, he just keeps putting his arm around us and just recounting the mountains that he walked over with us. <laughs> the challenges that he walked over with us. I'm going to ask you, when was the last time something happened in your life that you know you can't take credit for? If it's been a while, it's because you're on your path and not his. When you're on his path, you accomplish things you can never accomplish on your own. Things you're never capable of. And if it's been a while, you got to look at your path. When we're on his path, we achieve things we know we're not capable of. I'll show you this last passage of Jesus' life, Acts 10, 38. A beautiful text. Luke responds, And you know that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Can I just tell you real quick, this is an also apologetic verse for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Apologetic verse for understanding Trinitarian. Trinitarian understanding and theology because the Bible says God anointed Jesus, God the Father anointed the Son with the Holy Spirit and with power. And a lot of people think the Holy Spirit is just this impersonal power force. Well, that would be redundant because that would be he anointed with power and power. He anointed with the Holy Spirit and power. And one of the effects of being baptized in the Spirit is power, but it's not the only one. Okay, He anointed with the Holy Spirit and with power, and Jesus went around doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. God empowered his son, Jesus Christ, who was fully God but fully man on the earth. God empowered Jesus with his power. Let me ask you a pointed question. If the son of God needed the power of God to walk out the path of God, what makes you think you can walk out his path on your own power? 
He can't do it. Totally impossible. If you're going to walk on his path, you're going to need his power. If you're going to walk in his will, you're going to need his strength. And here's the good news. He loves, loves, loves to empower his people. He loves it. It goes back to the first point I asked you. What kind of father do you think he is? Do you think that God looks at you honestly? Just ask yourself right now. Do you think that God the Father looks at you and says, my part of the equation was creating you in your mother's womb. Now, Craig, you have it all on your own. Good luck. I've given you the calling, but you've got to pull it off. Good luck. Run with it. Is that the kind of father you think he is? Or do you think he's the kind of father who forms you in your mother's womb, speaking his word over your life, creating your calling from the foundations of the earth, birthing you into the world, and then making his favorite hobby on earth, helping you walk out his calling for your life. You do know that's one of his favorite hobbies, right? Helping us walk out our calling. He loves to help you be you. But here's what I learned. For me to be me, I desperately need his power. For me to be who I need to be as a husband, I need his power. For me to be who I need to be as a father, I need his power. One of my least favorite words in the entire English language is this word potential. I hated it growing up. I still really do hate it. I hate it when we did kinetic potential energy, potential kinetic energy and chemistry and all the science. But I hate the word potential because all growing up, I would hear from people, Craig, you have so much potential. And I don't know if you realize what they're saying when they say that. It's like, Craig, you could be so awesome, but you're not. Like, oh, man, you just got so much potential. Like, man, you know, you realize that? That's what potential means. Craig, you could be so incredible one day, but my man, today's not the day. You're pretty crappy today. But you got a lot of potential. So much potential. And I always hated the potential. And the more I heard the word potential, the more I hate it. And I started making it a personal goal to never live up to my potential. I made it a personal goal to never live up to what I am only by myself personally capable of. No, 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 no. I want to live so past my potential. I want to live so past what I am able to do in myself. And the only way to do that is with God's power. Only way to do it is with God's strength. God's empowering presence. Here's what you got to understand. You cannot fulfill God's calling for your life on your path. You must be on his path and it's going to require his power. It's going to require his power. God didn't create you to have to guess whose path you're on. He desires to make it very obvious. He will. When you're on your path or your, his path or yours, he'll make it obvious. He will, church. I can tell you from Pastor Chad and my heart, we're, you, you know this, but we as a commitment as elders, leaders, pastors in this church, we, we're not going to commit to ever policing because we believe in the Holy Spirit who lives inside you. We're going to teach the word of God. We're not going to police people into holiness. You have a good shepherd who leads you just like he leads us. And it's far to the day for the church and the people of God to understand that he will give you confirmation. He will lead you. Jesus will lead you. He is the good shepherd. You're going to have to endure some things. And some, sometimes that's the loudest confirmation he gives. That we'd endure some things we know we'd never sign up for our own. But one of the best benefits about living on God's path is when you hook up with him 
on his path, you immediately become far more capable than you ever thought you could be. So I got a question. Whose path are you on? Whose path are you on? Several years ago, I was, I was in the Manila, Philippines for a conference called Asia Fest. Some of you may know this story. Some may not have heard this. I, um, I was in Manila in the Philippines for a denomination I was a part of called the Church of God. They had these conferences called Winterfest, and they had their first one called Asia Fest. And um, I was there uh, ministering at this youth conference. It was like a Friday night, a Saturday morning, a Saturday night deal, and I was to minister on Saturday morning. And so I ministered on Saturday morning uh, in an amazing way. I've I, I sensed one of the first times in my life, at least in that season of life, God's clear confirmation where I began to see physically with my eyes things that God had put in my heart as a 16-year-old when he called me, uh, even to ministry, he called him to himself. And, um, you know, it's just a season where I just, we we're experiencing a lot of difficulty in the church that we were serving in in Tennessee, and it was just a breath of fresh air. It's always a breath of fresh air anyways to get on the mission field. Pastor Jensen Franklin, one of my other pastors, he always said it's, it's important as we as Christians maybe once a year to smell missions. And I love that smell missions because missions does have a smell. It has a smell. And we were there in the Philippines and I preached and God in the middle of that, of, of that evening service after I'd finished, I was up front worshiping. And one of my mentors who lived in Cleveland, Tennessee at the same time with me, his name was Billy Wilson. He's now the president of Oral Roberts University, but he was traveling with a minister called Empower 21. We had no idea we were together on the other side of the world. And the craziest thing happened as a spiritual mentor, I looked down the row and he's sitting at the end of the row. And it's just a crazy moment for me. I'm just like, what? I mean, we're an hour and a half away, right? From even Manila in this church called Church of God Das Marina. And I remember that the Lord had a, just a euphoric moment. I mean, the Lord just opened up the heavens. I call them moments of grace. And when he did, he pulled back all of the layers and the Lord asked me a question. I preached a series many, many years ago called How Does God Get Us to Say Yes? And he prepares us to, to say yes to that question he's asking long before he asks it. My only response was yes, but he asked. He said, Craig, do you believe that through the ministry that we could send a person to step foot on every nation in the planet. That's what he said. And when he said that, I fell down to my knees and I just began to weep uncontrollably. And I just said, yes, Lord. Obviously, I have no idea how that plays out, what it looks like, but yes. Yes. When I got back up, I got up off my knees and I went down because Pastor, Pastor Billy asked me to come and he did and he laid hands on me and the same Holy Spirit that anointed the Jesus of Nazareth that you and I just talked about is the same Spirit that anoints us today. And that Spirit anointed him with a word of prophecy. I'm not going to give you all of it, but one of the things he said very clearly was don't get off the journey. Very clear. Just rhema. Don't get off the journey. So the service ends. I go, to, uh, go back to my hotel that night. I choose not to sleep because I wanted to sleep on my big 24-hour trek home to the States. I get up, go to the airport, take my six-hour flight to Nagoya from Manila. I get to Japan. I don't sleep. I get on the 14-hour flight across the pond to Detroit. And I arrive in Detroit somewhere around 1 o'clock p.m. And when I get to Detroit, my flight going to straight to Chattanooga from Detroit doesn't leave until 7.30. And I get in Chattanooga about 9.30. 9.30 is when I'm supposed to arrive. And I said, you know what? It's 1.30. I don't want to wait till 7.30. I'm going to circumvent this real quick. And I'm going to go to Atlanta first because Atlanta got tons of flights. And then I'm going to go from Atlanta to Chattanooga. So I went up to the desk 
Got went through customs, checked in my bag, and said, "Hey, would you make sure it don't go to, don't go on that flight? Go to Atlanta. When I get to Atlanta, I'm gonna I'm gonna go to Chattanooga." And she said, "Yeah, you can go right now. You can leave Atlanta at 4:30, and you'll be home. I think at 5:30." I said, "5:30 is better than 9:30 when you've been traveling 28 hours." And so I called my wife, tell her what happens. I get on the plane to Atlanta, and then I pass out. Next thing you know, we're going circles around Atlanta Airport. I'm thinking. I look at my watch, it says 4.30, and I said, oh my God, I've already missed my flight to Chattanooga. We get down, there were supercell storms that day. I went up to the desk, I've never seen the Delta like it was. I was scheduled to be on the 17th flight from that point to Chattanooga. It was gonna be almost another 18 hours the next day, staying in the, the airport all night, right? Okay, that's not what I wanna do after I'm done traveled that long. So I said, I don't care about my baggage. I'm not doing that. I'm going to walk out to the terminal and I'm getting on the groom's bus because groom's got a bus up to Chattanooga and it'll take me up to, up to Chattanooga and my wife can pick me up there. And I'm walking down through the terminal. I don't have any spiritual thought whatsoever. I'm mad. I'm ticked. Come on. You know what I'm saying? And as I'm walking, the Lord speaks to me right there in Terminal A. He said, Craig, what did I tell you last night? Don't get off the journey. I got on the groom's bus, went all the way to Chattanooga, pulled into East Ridge, there on 2A, or just south, north of 2A. And I got my luggage out of the, the van, walked over to my wife's car, got in the pilot. I kid you not, folks, I can't make this stuff up. I sat down in the car and I looked and it said 930, the exact time I would have gotten home if I would have stayed in Detroit and on the journey that I already had been marked out for me. What are you saying, Craig? God was already confirming in the physical realm in one day that when you try to take your own path into your own hands, it creates heartache, it creates confusion, it creates more work, it's going to create things that you never want tomorrow up don't get off the journey how do I know I'm on God's path confirmation more than confusion endure things you never allow accomplish things you can never be capable of would you bow your heads with again thanks so much for listening to this week's message if you would like more information about our church be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org God bless you